A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In honor of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, an initiative has been set up called the Queen's Green Canopy. This project encourages people to plant trees to create a greener environment for generations to come. In this spirit, Anushka and I thought we'd take a look at some of the science surrounding the trees of England. We're not going to search all the trees on Wikipedia, are we? Well, in 1906, Rudyard Kipling wrote a tree song. Want to take a listen? Sounds good. Of all the trees that grow so fair, old England to adorn... Greater are none beneath the sun than oak and ash and thorn. Sing oak and ash and thorn, good sirs, all of a midsummer morn. Surely we sing no little thing in oak and ash and thorn. You that is old in churchyard bold, he breedeth a mighty bow. Older for shoes do wise men choose, and beech for cups also. But when ye have killed and your bowl is spilled and your shoes are clean outworn, back ye must speed for all that ye need to oak and ash and thorn. Elam she hateth mankind and waiteth till every gust be laid, to drop a limb on the head of him that anyway trusts her shade. But whether a lad be sober or sad, or mellow with ale from the horn, he'll take no wrong when he lieth along neath oak and ash and thorn. How many did you count? Uh, I'm guessing six. There was definitely oak. Ash was there. And thorn? Yes, he had something for oak and ash and thorn, I think. There was you, alder, what else? Elm, which I guess is elm. And beech. Ah, I knew I'd missed one. Where do we even begin? Well, we've covered ash trees on the Naked Scientists before. There's a nasty disease that's killing many of them in the UK called ash dieback. In 2017, naked geneticist Kat Arndy spoke to Richard Bugs to find out more. In 2012, ash dieback was found in woodlands in Britain for the first time, and it had come here from Europe, and we'd seen it actually slowly progressing across Europe over several years. And when it arrived in the UK, our government decided to fund quite a lot of research into what we could do about ash dieback. And one of the things that I've been doing is working on the ash trees themselves and sequencing their genome to try to find genes that could be responsible for their interaction with the fungus. And we're hoping that we might be able to breed trees in the future that have resistance to the fungus. Let's backtrack a little bit. So what causes ash dieback and how is it spread? Ash dieback is caused by the fungus Hymenoscyphus fraxineus, which is native to Japan and eastern China. Uh, We're not quite sure how it got over here, um, but here it's much more pathogenic against our trees than it is against ash trees in Japan and China, which is why we have a problem. That was 2017. Now, five years later, I thought I'd get back in touch with Richard to find out where we stand. As we expected, the disease has got a lot worse and we're seeing a lot more trees dying now. 
than there were five years ago. So we're really beginning to see much more devastation to our landscape. But on the other hand, we've also made really good progress with our research. So we now have a much better understanding of the disease itself and also of the host, the ash tree host of the fungus. We now know that some ash trees are more resistant than others, and we have some understanding of the genetic basis of that. So that really opens the way for breeding programs to breed ash trees with more resistance to ash dieback. And I think that's where our main hope now lies. Do you have any figures for the damage that has been done almost a decade after this was introduced to Britain? We know how far it's spread. It's basically spread throughout the whole of Britain. Estimates vary of how many trees so far have been killed, but it's very, very large numbers. And in terms of what the total cost is going to be of this pandemic as it plays out, there's been an estimate that it will cost £15 billion in total, both directly incurred and also to ecosystems. It sounds very gloomy, but you say that there has been some progress in understanding the disease, in understanding the the hosts and how to make them more resilient. Last time we spoke, you were looking at mapping out the genetics of ash trees in order to try and breed either artificially or naturally a more resilient tree. Where are we with that? We've completed a reference genome for ash, and then we followed that up with a study of a mass screening trial that was set up by Forest Research. Back in 2012, they took young ash trees that were stranded in nurseries because of the new travel ban on ash, and they planted them out at several sites in the southeast of England and planted out uh, well over 100,000 ash trees. Those have been exposed to the ash dieback fungus now for several years. And we sampled those trees and looked for differences in the genomes of trees that were really badly damaged by ash dieback and trees that stayed healthy despite high infection levels of ash dieback in their local area. And that enabled us to find about two and a half thousand places in the genome where there's variation that seems to be associated with being either more or less susceptible to ash dieback. So we hope that we've identified something of the genetic basis of resistance to this disease. And if we can select for those variants that give more resistance so we can sort of get all of them into the same tree, we hope that tree would be a lot more resistant to ash dieback than any trees that we have at the moment. Do we have any idea when such a program could start? Well, as is always the case, it it depends on funding. If funding becomes available, then the program could start very rapidly. I mean, this has been evidently quite a devastating disease. Is there anything that we can do in the future to try and mitigate the risk of this happening again, either with ash or with a different tree? We can try to prevent future epidemics by having tighter biosecurity. A lot of these pathogens come from abroad and we need to try to stop them entering the country if we possibly can. We also need to be careful to plant a diversity of different species when we create new woodlands so that if one species is taken out by a disease that others will persist. Sobering stuff. Did you know though not all bacteria and fungi are bad for trees? Is that so? Yeah. Older trees, coincidentally another one in this poem, have a symbiotic relationship with bacteria. 
I spoke to Professor David Coombs about this to find out more. Alder is a beautiful tree, isn't it? But you're right, if you dig around in the ground, what you see is these nodules, and they look like miniaturised potatoes, if you like. They're homes for bacteria, and the plants are working with the bacteria to get nitrogen out of the air and to provide themselves with nitrogen. Quite a few plants have got this ability to work with bacteria to fix nitrogen out of the air, and one of them is the alder. And there's this particular species called Frankia ulni, which is involved in the process for the alder here in the UK. Why is nitrogen so important for trees? Nitrogen is one of the key mineral nutrients that all plants require. They need nitrogen to make their proteins and many other things. And so it's an absolutely essential element for plants to have from the soil. Nitrogen in the air is a really stable gas. There's two atoms of nitrogen stuck together with three bonds, and it's really hard to break apart. But German scientists just over a century ago worked out a way of splitting those two nitrogen atoms apart and sticking hydrogens on them to make ammonia. And that's that's the precursor for many industrial processes, but also for fertiliser manufacture. Does Frankia only do this nitrogen fixation with other trees? It's quite restricted. Each bacteria is working closely with, with one narrow set of species. And so in the UK, we have this particular one, Frankia ulni, which is in a group of bacteria called the actinomycetes. They actually love growing in low oxygen conditions. So anaerobic conditions is what they prefer to grow in. Does nitrogen fixation help the tree? Actually, the trees are sending out an open invitation to this particular bacteria to come and infect them. And so trees have got to make a developmental decision whether they want particular bacteria in helping them or shunning away the bad bacteria. They're inviting them in and then they make a little house for them, essentially. (laughs) And once they've got that house, the coating of that house controls how much oxygen gets into the bacteria because these bacteria work best without much oxygen. And then the plants feed them as well. So they're taking the sort of sugars which they produce and using those to feed the bacterial communities inside the nodules. The plants are really benefiting from these bacteria because it's hard to get nitrogen from the soil. And so they're using these bacteria to provide them with nitrogen. There seems to be this give and take relationship between the bacteria and the tree. Absolutely, that's right. Yeah, so it's what we call a symbiotic relationship where there's sort of benefits for both the bacteria. They've been given a home and some food and for the plants, the the bacteria are ultimately working with the plants to produce an amino acid, which is used as a building block of proteins and many other things. And so you said that there's this symbiotic relationship between the bacteria and the tree. Does anything happen to the environment around the tree? In the longer term, absolutely. These nitrogen fixes tend to be found. One of the places they're found is in what's called early successional sites where there's very little nitrogen in the soil. So say you have, this isn't in the UK context, but say you have a retreating glacier and as the glacier retreats, you've got lots of ground up rock, which is plentiful in some nutrients like phosphorus, but there's no nitrogen in there. So the nitrogen fixers get in there, these symbiotic plants, and they start producing nitrogen And as the plants decompose, that nitrogen then gets into the soil. And so rather than having just a phosphorus-rich soil without any nitrogen, over time, nitrogen builds up in the soil and you get a richer soil, which many other plants can tolerate and grow in. That's neat. What's Mr Kipling got next on his list then? Uh, Yew trees. Don't they make bows out of yew trees? They certainly used to. Turns out the wood of the yew tree has some special properties that make it perfect for producing bows. Luckily, I know a bowyer. Sorry, what? A bowyer, someone who makes bows. 
His name is Richard Head, and he crafts longbows for a living. Let me ask him exactly why he uses yew trees. Well, any bow has to bend, and the outside of the curve has to resist tension forces. And the inside, the belly of the bow, has to resist compression forces. When we make bows today, we often laminate different woods together to give us those properties. But a piece of yew from a yew tree just under the bark is a pale coloured sapwood. And that is very, very good at resisting tension forces. Then the orange coloured heartwood, which is completely distinct from the sapwood, is very good at resisting compression. So you've got those two ideal properties in one piece of wood. You alluded that you can use the branches, but would you ideally fell the entire tree? Ideally, the wood we need is from the trunk of the tree. And in the Middle Ages, when there were a lot of yew trees in the country, no doubt they were growing in the forests and grew up straight to the light. And you had a a trunk that wasn't full of little side branches. English yew has never been the best wood for making bows. Uh, In the Middle Ages, the best wood came from Spain and Italy, high up in the mountains, where the yew grew on very poor soil. So the wood didn't have a lot of uh, nutrients to grow with. And the grain was very tight because it grew extremely slowly. And that gives you the extra spring. So you said that in the Middle Ages, they would grow in these forests and grow very tall and very straight. Is that no longer the case these days? No, most yew trees now are specimen trees in country estates. I mean, churchyards is a lot of yew. So most yews you see now have been allowed to grow wild and not tended. There's not so much yew around these days that is suitable for making bows. And bringing us into the 21st century, what are modern bows made of? A lot of modern bows have become very complex and they are laminates of thin layers of of carbon fibre, Uh, wood and various other materials. A lot of longbows now are made from different woods. So to replace the sapwood, hickory is very commonly used. And then the belly of the wood could be lemon wood, which is a a hardwood. What kind of wood would you use for creating an arrow? Going back to the Middle Ages, the cheaper bows were made from ash and a lot of the arrows were made from ash. An arrow got to bend around the bow. So arrow sharp needs to be reasonably flexible. Nowadays, um, modern target arrows are either made from cedar or Scots pine, Pinus sylvestris. So we've covered ash, alder and yew. Which leaves thorn, oak and elm to go. Yeah, I have a feeling we're running out of facts, mm, though. Perhaps we should rope in an expert. Well... I've heard about this tree walk at the Cambridge Botanic Gardens and got in touch with Chantal Helm, who designed the trail. Keen on a walk in windy Cambridge weather? Sure. So the tree trail takes you around our sort of western part of the garden where most of the older trees are located. And uh, you'll discover if you do the tree trail that our trees are planted in family groups so that you can sort of learn about how to identify plants and trees that are particularly within a family. Brilliant. Let's Excellent. Go. Let's go. Okay, so we are here in the elm family. Elm trees have kind of got a bit of a historical rap for dropping limbs in clear weather. 
Is there a particular reason for that? I'm interested in that. I think there was a Rudyard Kipling poem from 1900s or something that mentioned the elms, wasn't there? And I think it was a bit unfair because elms are not the only trees that drop limbs. This limb drop thing can happen after a drought and then sudden lots of rain. You get lots of water going up into the xylem vessels, potentially creates a very heavy bough and that can drop. There are lots of trees that will do that and it's not very specific to elms. We're standing underneath some beech trees and I've heard that beech trees try to poison the other plants around them. Is that the case? I'm not heard too much about beech trees doing that extensively but there are species that are very well known for that behavior including eucalyptus it is a thug in terms of getting rid of anything that wants to grow underneath it what proportion of plants do you think have that evolutionary advantage compared to those that don't competition with other plants is only one of the problems plants have to deal with They have to deal with herbivores, which I think can be a bigger problem. So they will often produce toxins that will try and reduce the feeding behaviour of herbivores on their leaves. They may produce thorns. They may grow in such a way to prevent herbivores from accessing their leaves. And I think herbivory is probably a bigger problem for them to deal with in terms of their toxins. Right, so we've just turned off the path. What have we found? Well, we are at the uh, eastern end of the glasshouse and we have got a magnificent cork oak over here. The cork tree produces this outer soft, spongy material to protect it from fire. So um, harvesting cork results in a loss of that protective layer on the outside of the trunk. So that needs to be done very carefully on a cycle at which the tree does not become susceptible to fire if a fire were to pass through that environment. What other oaks do you have here? Well, there's a lot of different Quercus. A Quercus is the genus name for oaks. There are many, many species of oak. In England, we have the English oak, also known as the pedunculate oak and the sessile oak. And those, as native species, are absolutely amazing for biodiversity. So we think that oaks support hundreds and hundreds of different species on their own. And uh, planting a nice oak would be a really, really good thing to do in any habitat. But if you are buying a tree to plant, you have to be very careful where you get that tree from. And uh, there's a lot of certification schemes out there now that will ensure the health of the plant. So if you're buying a tree, go and make sure that you get it from a certified nursery where they have a plant health system in place and you can see the passports and everything for those trees. So this is the end of the trail. The last point of the trail will be in the Magnoliaceae. Magnolias are a well-known plant in many people's gardens, I think. And uh, it's always a wonderful spring spectacle when the magnolia flowers start emerging. And you can start seeing them already now. We're watching the buds as they're starting to burst. And we try and record that first day of the first magnolia flower of our different types here. We are contributing to something called Nature's Calendar as well, which is a long-running project run by the Woodland Trust, where they have a number of native species that you can record all sorts of events throughout the year. So first flowering, bud burst, but we selected a number of plants. We only started that about last year. We've been walking around here in late January, and most of the trees have not got their foliage. When would be the best time to come and visit the walk? Well, the first tree to burst its buds has already done so. A native species is the elder, E-L-D-E-R. So we missed it. A few days ago, it burst okay. its buds. So it'll start looking quite nice. Um, 
And then, obviously, most trees will start, we're thinking about March, April, May. And obviously, that's the whole thing with that exciting period when you're like, woo, what's coming out? Is it the hawthorn or is it the blackthorn? It's a nice time of year to really sort of look at that bud bursting flowering. And if people want to volunteer to plant trees, what initiatives are set up around Cambridge that they're able to join or get information from to do so? Well, that's where they need to go to the City Council because City Council has an amazing project called the Canopy Project where they have been encouraging people to plant trees, to survey the trees within Cambridge City. So really go and have a look at that. There's so many opportunities there and I really recommend engaging with that project. To plant trees in your garden, look after trees. You can volunteer to water trees in the summer and to map trees. There's a whole map with all the trees in Cambridge on it and you can go and have find them on an app. Wow, it's quite fun. It's called Curio XYZ. They're trying to get all of them mapped. So I think they haven't mapped them all yet, but a large portion have been mapped and they're looking for volunteers to map the rest of them. Well, I'll definitely return later in the year, and I'm feeling inspired to plant a tree, maybe an oak tree, in my back garden. Make sure not to buy it off some shady internet site, though. Is anyone else planting trees for the Queen's Green Canopy? Well, I did have a chat with James Littlewood, who's the CEO of Cambridge Past, Present and Future. He says they've been planting quite a few. This winter, we've got a series of projects where we are converting what was farmland or agricultural land into woodland by planting 4,000 trees in three different places. One of them is a place called Coton Countryside Reserve, and we have two sites for tree planting there. The third location is at Wandlebury Country Park. What species of trees are you planting? We are using the species which are already found in that area as a basis for our trees that we want to plant. We don't generally plant elm because of Dutch elm disease, and we're also not planting ash because of ash dieback disease. So both of those tree species, if we planted them, would have a high chance of failure. If you planted a woodland which was predominantly of one species, there is a high risk that a disease in future that we're not aware of yet might destroy that entire woodland. So planting a wide variety of species reduces the risk that you're reliant on any one. What is the importance of increasing tree cover and building up these woodlands? Cambridgeshire is the least wooded area of England and England is not a very wooded place globally. We are desperate for trees for a lot of reasons to helping mitigate climate change, but primarily as wildlife habitat. But also for human well-being, you know, people really associate trees with a natural environment. They bring a lot of mental and health well-being more than other habitat types. We're really doing this for wildlife and for people with the added benefit that it would help towards climate change. We have now planted about 2,000 trees. Most of that tree planting has been carried out by volunteers who've been fantastic. Cambridge Nature Network is looking at trying to create these interconnected habitats around Cambridge. But it's a bit like a Russian doll, and that in turn is part of a biggest project in Cambridge here to have six of these landscape-scale conservation areas. And then the government, through its 25-year environment plan, wants to have a whole network of these covering the whole country, which they're going to call some National Nature Recovery Network. It's just an example of how doing something at quite a small scale can be part of that bigger picture. And so it's understanding that it's, it's not just what you're doing, it's what everyone else is doing. And that's what will make a real difference to woodland cover in the UK. If folks from Cambridge do want to enjoy the woodlands and walk through them, at least what exists at the moment, are they open to the public? Yes, they are. The one at Coatland is part of the reserve. The one that we've planted to the north of the village is not open to the public yet. We are creating a footpath 
through there. We've still got a little bit of work to do, but that should be open in the spring. The woodland that we are planting at Wandlebury is also part of a new project, which we will formally open in the spring as well. So I hope if you were by June, the public would be able to visit all of those woodlands. If you'd like to know more about our work or get involved, then please visit our website, which is www.cambridgepf.org. Let's bring out our inner arborist and do our part by planting a tree for the Jubilee. If you're keen to plant a tree, there's more information at queensgreencanopy.org. All the links that have been mentioned within this segment are also in the podcast show notes or on our website. Anushka, race you to that tree? Wait, we're in the studio. What tree? This one! <laughs>